1776, Americans have gotten together and said, you know when you celebrate? Our independence, when we mailed a letter to Britain saying, we're not friends anymore. I think it's funny as Americans that we do that. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating to me. But I think it's more interesting as Americans, we stuck it to the monarchy all that time ago. But as I understand American culture, as I understand what it means to be an American, I find that we're obsessed, though, still with royalty. We're obsessed with the concept of royalty. We're obsessed with kings and queens. I remember the beginning of 2020 when all that drama was going down with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Does anybody remember this? This is like pre-COVID, barely, and so it's kind of like probably a fog in your mind. This was such a big deal. I don't even remember what it was about. It was something with like the Queen of England. Somehow she's still alive, and they were just upset with her. And then to the point that this carried on from 2020 all the way to 2021, where Oprah is interviewing them, talking about this. Do you guys remember this time? This was like the era of like Tiger King, okay? Just that in and of itself speaks so much of how far we've come as a society that we don't like that show anymore, that documentary. We can't get away from royalty. I think as Americans, we're obsessed with this concept of royalty because it's so foreign to us. I think more Americans tuned in for the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle than actually British people did. If that doesn't speak to Americans loving royalty, I don't know what does. I don't know why we're so obsessed with it. And I think why we love royalty is this idea of being so revered and having all this power of being somebody so influential that we can control a whole nation by the say of our words. I would say, honestly, modern-day celebrities are pretty close to royalty. They have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of influence. They have a lot of voice. And when understanding royalty and talking about royalty, I bring this all up because tonight my desire is I want to communicate to you that on the topic of royalty, on the topic of kingdoms, whether you're somebody who believes in a monarchy one day, I don't know where you stand with that, whatever, sure. Maybe you are from Britain, I don't know. But no matter what you believe about power, or what you believe about who rules, or if you follow the Meghan Markle, Prince Harry conundrum, all of us, all of us, in some degree or another, we are serving and believing in some form of a kingdom. I don't mean necessarily that you're voting for a kingdom or a king specifically. What I mean is we're all abiding in our lives by different sets of principles. And those sets of principles that we believe in, those sets of principles that we carry through in our life, the way we live life furthers this domain, furthers this ideology more. In this kingdom, it could be something as the kingdom of God, as Jesus would put it. It could be something as the kingdom of self. It could be something entirely else. But all of us, whether we like to admit it or not, we are serving some sort of kingdom. We are furthering some sort of agenda in our lives. And tonight, if it's okay with you, I want to communicate to you from the perspective, from the point of view of trying to understand and outline what kind of kingdoms are easy to fall into, what kind of kingdoms are easy to serve, what kind of ways of life, what kind of ideologies, what kind of principles are easy to begin to believe and follow outside of Jesus. I want to title this sermon, Choose Your Kingdom. It popped up behind me. I just saw the light. I was like, oh, I better get to what I'm talking about tonight. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to John 18, verse 33. John 18, verse 33. And as you're turning there, I want to explain the context of what we're talking about tonight. I believe this, that 
when talking about kingdoms, when specifically I want to communicate to followers of Jesus in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus in this space, to resonate the words of Jesus, no man can serve two masters. And I believe at this cultural moment, this cultural paradigm we find ourselves in, as young adults, 18 to 25, 18 to 30, there's a lot of things fighting for our kingdom attention. There's a lot of different ideologies being shared to us. There's a lot of different ideologies being spoken about. And if we're not careful about what these ideologies are communicating, if we're not careful, we can begin to mistake them for the kingdom of God as followers of Jesus. And so as we're reading tonight, we're in John 18, verse 33. And the context of this passage is we find Jesus before his crucifixion. He's been handed over by the religious leaders. He's been slapped in the face, beaten. And the religious leaders are finding that in order to execute Jesus for the charge of blasphemy, which they couldn't do, they could not exact capital punishment, they had to take him before Rome. So he's taken to the local governor I'm not talking about like a governor of a state. I'm talking about a Roman governor. He's taken to the palace of this governor, and his name is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. And he's taken before this governor to be seen if he's guilty or not of these charges against him. And we're going to read now what Pontius Pilate decides about Jesus. It says this in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responded, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate replies, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But the Jewish leaders, but now the kingdom I serve is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And this response Pilate gives, I feel like is just such a good measuring of even where we are at this moment in our culture. Pilate responds, what is truth? What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Let me pray for us tonight. Father, thank you for the opportunity to communicate your words to us, your promises to us. And Father, I pray over this time together that we have tonight that I communicate your truth, that this time in this space isn't used for personal opinion, this time in this space isn't used for opinion hour, but Lord, it's used to elevate your character, to communicate your character and your goodness. Father, I pray for those in this space that feel maybe far from you tonight, those in the space who are, are unaware of the idea of a loving, personal God, that they may be drawn to you tonight, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. One of the most contested and debated arguments over the 20th century stemmed within philosophy. The, this one phrase, which has 
since then created a lot of bad Christian music and then also been labeled all over people's Twitter pages, all over, all over album covers for metal bands. The phrase was said in Frederick Nietzsche's The Joyous Experience, The, the Pursuit of Joyous Knowledge, God is dead. Anybody hear this phrase before? God is dead. I remember there was that Christian movie that came out, God, God is Not Dead, and it was contesting this idea. And this phrase has been confused. This phrase has been contorted and honestly debated and argued for all of the 20th and 21st century. And the, what's important to understand about this idea, and track with me, I'm not going to be just talking about 18th century or 19th century German philosophy all night. Some of you may be into that, but that's not where we're going tonight. This phrase was said at the turn of the Enlightenment, and if you're not aware of what the Enlightenment is, is when a group of scientists and philosophers got together over a period of time, and they convinced society, and they convinced themselves that no longer is society in need of a God or a moral structure, that we ourselves, we have evolved and developed beyond that concept, that now we have science, now we have reason, now we have these things. And by the way, if you're a Christian in this space, you ever get asked the question, hey, do you believe in science or do you believe in faith? You can say, uh, yes, <laughs> I believe in both. But at this turn of the century, this German philosopher, philosopher Nietzsche, released this poem. And this poem has been misunderstood by many, but its true meaning is wrapped within the words behind it. The poem is about a madman wandering through a village with a lantern. And this is what he cites him as saying. I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then. He provoked much laughter. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Philosophers and probably many people in your university settings have taken this quote and used it as a banister for the secular age of reason. But the reality is, is when Nietzsche was communicating this idea, he wasn't communicating it to bolster and to claim that humanity has killed God. That's impossible, first of all. But this wasn't a banner or outcry of accomplishment of joy. If anything, the statement that he made was of lament. If anything, the statement he made was of lament that society had grown to a point within Western Europe and the West as a whole that we no longer have need for God in a society. And many philosophers at this time actually viewed this as a good thing. We've moved on from the shackling and the entanglement of what it means to follow God. We don't need to get caught up on all that. This was at the turn of the 19th century going into the 20th century. They believed from now on, we can be hopeful. We can develop our own way of living. We can be free from crusades and religious violence and wars. And it was hopeful at the time, and a lot of people were probably excited. But there's two main issues with that. World War I, World War II, gulags, communism. 20th century being the bloodiest century of all time. This idea of God not being a part of society, this idea of God not being a parent or being interwoven into society was birthed at this time. But as we look at our moment right now, as we look at our cultural moment right now, I would argue 
that many of us find ourselves in a place of desperation as we've created a society farther and farther from the ideals of God. And the idea that to build a kingdom, to build a place apart from God, I would call it the kingdom of self. It's the first kingdom we're going to look at tonight. It's nothing new. This didn't come around in the 19th century, the 20th century. It came around long before that. And I believe in our text tonight, we can understand through the character of Pontius Pilate what the kingdom of self looks like and the dangers of the kingdom of self. The first thing we need to understand about this character named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is somebody who, within church culture, within sermon culture, he's somebody who's kind of an enigma. He's kind of a weird individual. There's four different accounts of Pontius Pilate within the Gospels that we read about. And Pontius Pilate's kind of a weird guy. Like, just to say it and put it lightly, he's kind of an interesting individual. Some people believe, due to one account of his wife telling him, leave this man Jesus alone, he is innocent. And then Pontius Pilate himself claiming Jesus is innocent. Oh, Pontius Pilate must have believed. Pontius Pilate must have been a good person. But I believe that Pontius Pilate in this story is a symbol for what it looks like to build a kingdom of self, to build a lifestyle, to live out principles orientated around I. What we need to understand about Pontius Pilate is this. We just need to begin asking questions. Why did Pontius Pilate do what he did? Have you ever read scripture in this moment where Pontius Pilate hands Jesus over to the crowds and asks this question, why did Pontius Pilate do this? I think when reading scripture, it's important to always ask questions, to always be digging and asking why. God's never afraid of our why. See, at this moment in time, Rome is controlling Jerusalem. Rome is controlling Israel. And as I mentioned, the religious leaders want Jesus dead. The religious leaders cannot stand Jesus for blaspheming against God, for claiming to be God himself. So Pontius Pilate is brought into this situation because he stands for Rome. And he's brought, he has Jesus brought before him. Due to his crucifixion, he says, what are they charging against you? And Jesus has this interesting dialogue with him. And Pontius Pilate is so obsessed with the idea of Jesus being king. I believe in, in Pontius Pilate's perspective, he cannot understand somebody with so much power, so much influence, so much say and sway with people, how they couldn't be a king, a king of the earth, a king of ruling people with power. And see, Rome is what Pontius Pilate stood for. Rome at the time, if you know your Roman history, was oppressive. Rome was about power. Rome was about getting what's yours, conquest. See, Pontius Pilate, I believe, is a symbol for the kingdom of self. Because what Pontius Pilate leads and goes on to do, we ask the question, why if Pontius Pilate believed Jesus to be innocent, hands him over to a bloodthirsty crowd? You ever read this passage and ask that question? You ever read the Bible and you're like, this is making no sense narratively. If I'm reading a story and somebody says, hey, you're innocent, and I'm reading something like that, I'm going to say, okay, this is good for the story. This is going to carry the story. What's going to happen with the protagonists in the story is they're going to be freed, and they're no longer going to be shackled by the system they're in. But Pontius Pilate says, you're free. And he says, as a result, I'll turn you over to the crowd to decide your fate. I mean, that's just gaslighting. I just have to say it right now. But Pontius Pilate turns Jesus over to this crowd because I believe this. 
Pontius Pilate stands for the kingdom of self because the kingdom of self is always about people-pleasing. The kingdom of self is always about people-pleasing. The kingdom of self, the main principle of the kingdom of self is based upon what others have to say about me and living by that standard. We see it here in this moment. Read this. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Then he gives this response. What is truth, retorted Pilate. Pilate, this individual, apart from Jesus, he is not able to have any moral compass. He has the facts. He has the reality placed before him. Jesus is innocent. But who is to guide Pontius Pilate? He is left up to his own devices. He is left up to his own standards. See, when you live for self, it's a very small reality. For those of us who have ever done that, which is every single one of us in this room, (laughs) it doesn't take long to realize when I do what I want as I want as I see fit for myself, my world's pretty small. It's a pretty small reality. So one, Pontius Pilate is living for the opinions of others because his power, his ability to have influence over people, and the kingdom of self is entirely involved in that. It's all about influence and power. I think we just see this in our modern era with social media. How many followers? How many TikTok views? Uh, How many brands? I mean, honestly, social media is just one big ad right now, honestly. You know what I'm talking about? It's all about influence. It's all about power. It's all about leverage. If you've ever been to a major city, if you've ever lived there for any amount of time, I've talked with many friends who become very tired and very upset about what it's like to live in a major city that everybody who's living in a major city is always just trying to get things from each other. Oh, I know this guy. He knows this guy. He knows this guy. He knows this guy. I can connect you with him. And it's give and take. And this is what Pontius Pilate is offering in this moment. I believe Pontius Pilate offers up Jesus to the crowd to please them to please the crowd, and also because he has no moral compass, no moral guiding whatsoever. When we live in this way, it can create a very confusing, frustrating reality. Wouldn't you agree? I think it's fascinating, going back to Nietzsche, and Nietzsche communicating this concept of when a society separates itself apart from God, it's, it's grim. It truly is grim. In another work of Nietzsche, which he t- titled The Twilight of Idols, he said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the holes. This is coming from an atheist, secular philosopher. What he's communicating is this, that when you try to live a life in which there are principles and values which are a part of following Jesus, and you take those principles and values and rip them away from the identity and the discipleship of Jesus, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. The concept of humanity being made in God's image is what has rooted, I believe, the West in valuing humanity, giving humanity rights want to talk about something, right? The idea of a right as a human, it's a Christian concept. Any other 
ancient society, any other, any other ancient civilization, they didn't believe people had rights. But Jesus is introduced in the picture, and all of a sudden people are made in the image of God. When the first Christians are introduced in Rome and after Jesus' ascension, they're beginning to take part in Roman society where infanticide, people placing their babies on the side of the road to be killed. Christians step in and say, no, these babies are made in the image of God. We're going to save and help these babies. Well, women in Greco-Roman society were viewed as less than slaves, as dirt. Christians viewed women as, no, they're made in the image of God. What does Paul say? Neither Greek nor Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in Jesus. What I find is many of us, we may believe and fall into the concept of the kingdom of self. If you ask anybody on the street, what's the purpose of life? If you asked most people, they would probably say, to just enjoy it. And that sounds nice in concept, right? Just like enjoy life. Like, yeah, just, I mean, I don't know why I'm here. Just be happy. But when you really root that question down, the purpose of life, it's all about me. It's all about self. It's all about what I can gain out of this life I've had. You cannot build the kingdom of self and expect the principles of the gospel to take part in that. It will fall apart. Your entire worldview will fall apart. As we continue reading, we find another kingdom is represented in this narrative. The next kingdom I believe is represented in this narrative is the kingdom of facade. The kingdom of facade. I just said facade because it's a cool word. I was like, oh, facade, that's a cool point. Facade is really posing and being something you're not. Putting up a facade is putting up a face to be disguised as something else. You want to know what a facade is? Somebody asks you, hey, how are you doing? You say, oh, good. And you know, man, I'm failing every class. I just got let go of my job. Or I work at my job and I make $9 an hour in this economy with these gas prices. Life is not good. Let me tell you about something, my friend. Can I tell you about how my week has been? But then you go in your mind, you tell yourself this narrative, and then you just go suck back into the reality. You're like, actually, I'm not going to dump this on this person. Good. I'm doing good. That's putting up a facade. You and I, we put up facades every day. But I mentioned the kingdom of facade because there's something interesting mentioned at the end of the passage. And it's, it's this character. Let's read back. Verse 40. Oh, verse 39. It is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews, Jesus the Nazarene? They shouted back. No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Now, when you read the other Gospels, you can understand a little bit more about Barabbas. I'd encourage you to do that maybe some point this week. Just go in each last section of the four Gospels and read about Barabbas. He's a fascinating individual. In this moment, in this description John gives, we don't know much about Barabbas. It's kind of hard to understand. Matthew, which is recorded as one of the earliest Gospels, is documented that Barabbas' first name was actually Yeshua. Yeshua is Jesus. That Barabbas' first name is the same first name as Jesus of Nazareth. You could view this passage as Pontius Pilate posing to the crowd, and this is how Matthew displays it. Do you want Jesus of Nazareth, or do you want Jesus Barabbas? Yeshua the Nazarene, or Yeshua Barabbas? Now, most scholars agree that Barabbas was most likely a zealot, which was a Jewish political group that was all about, honestly, domestic terrorism. 
whatever it took to overthrow Rome by any amount of raw physical power they can muster up, they would use against Roman legions. The zealots are uh, actually also known as the Sicarii, which are, is uh, Hebrew for dagger men. It's such, such a cool thing. I don't know. I just nerd out of this. Sorry. I'm like going all historical with you. If you hate it, you can come back next week. It'll be better. But Barabbas is known as this zealot. Now, most likely Barabbas is, was involved in some kind of stabbing because Acts tells us that Barabbas was a murderer, that we killed the savior of the world, God in the flesh, who was innocent, and we chose a murderer to be freed. So Barabbas was most likely a zealot who would, and what these Sicarii would do is they'd come to a common courtyard or a common marketplace area that was crowded with a lot of people. They'd run up to Roman centurions and they'd stab them in the neck real quick and run off. And the idea that they believed is that they believed this quote, if we push back on Rome, if we fight Rome, God will meet us. If we oppose Rome, God will come against us. And in reading history, you begin to understand the Romans were awful. The Romans had one belief. You're a Roman or you're not. The Romans would come into your country, say, hey, where are you going to become Romans? And you say, oh, I'm new to this. Um, what does that mean? They say, well, we're going to take all your land, and you're going to convert everything we want. If we want to take all your women as slaves, we'll do that. If we want to kill all your men, we'll do that because we're Rome, and we're going to take you over. And if you oppose them, then you all die. You have no choice in the matter. Rome was oppressive. I think we see the effects of colonism today in our modern culture. I think we look back, and we may have sat through history and just read the different accounts of the violence enacted on indigenous peoples, and the tribalism people naturally do, and Rome was the best at it. Rome was the best at oppressing people. So you look at people like Barabbas, you look at people like the Zealots, you see how Rome is treating Jews. You just read the accounts. In Luke 13, 1, it says that Pontius Pilate mixed the blood of pilgrims, innocent people, to overthrow a riot. And you begin to believe, yeah, Rome was pretty messed up. And it's easy to look back on this narrative and say, yeah, I don't know why they freed Barabbas. Jesus did nothing wrong. Why would they free Barabbas? I believe the people had given up on Jesus of Nazareth and sought a more practical savior in Barabbas. That Barabbas symbolized a political ideal. That Barabbas symbolized raw physical power. That their hope was placed in this man that showed that he got things done. This Jesus of Nazareth, what has he done so far? He cursed a fig tree. He told us about some fish. He told us about servants. What is going on? This Jesus of Nazareth, he's not all that it cracked up to be. Because many points in the gospel, in John 15, actually, Jesus is cited as running away from a group of people who tried to make him king by force. He literally had to run away from them. Can you imagine this? If I have to run away from somebody, that's pretty intense. And I just want to ask you, this crowd, do you think the same people in this crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, were the same people in the crowd at the Sea of Galilee? Have you ever thought about this? The same people listening on the Sermon of the Mount were the same people shouting to crucify Jesus. It's most likely it was a small region. It wasn't a huge metropolitan city. Everybody knew each other. And I find that the people in this narrative grew tired of the methods and ways of Jesus. And they saw the methods and the ways of Barabbas and said, now this is a kingdom I can get behind. Now this is a kingdom that I could be a part of. 
And here's the sad part about this movement of the zealots. The movement of the zealots actually led to eventually the, what's known as the Great Revolt in Jewish history, where they spurred on Roman soldiers and killed many Roman soldiers that Rome tried to overtake Jerusalem, and they sieged Jerusalem. They pretty much just waited out Jerusalem. And the zealots stirred up the people and started strife to the point where at the end of the revolution, at the end of the revolt, one million Jews died. Jewish historians cite this moment in Jewish history as one of the greatest cataclysmic catastrophes prior to the Holocaust. And it's the byproduct of the way in which this thinking and ideology led to. It's very easy to use earthly, worldly standards and power and masquerade it and disguise it as the kingdom of God. It's so easy to do it. It's so easy to do it. And I think in this moment where we find ourselves as Christians, we just have to ask ourselves the question, would I be the one to choose Barabbas or choose Yeshua? Would I be the one to perpetuate the idea that the way of Jesus isn't really working out. Yeah, the enemy loves stuff. Mm-mm. I don't love people that vote this way. I don't love people who don't agree with me in my ideologies. I love what Rich Viota says. He tells us this, that as Christians, we are not here to win political points and grow in worldly power. We are here to work for a world that reflects the justice, compassion, and love of the kingdom of Jesus. I think it's very easy to almost set up straw men, to almost set up these very practical people in our lives, political leaders, people on our social media, things we post on our story. It's almost a hope. We all have a hope in certain systems. And it's easy to let those systems and let those people and let these politics supersede people. It's easy to let these systems and these politics and these ideas to supersede even Jesus himself. But going on to Jesus' words, this is what Jesus says about his followers. And this leads us to our next idea. But he says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The last kingdom represented is the kingdom of heaven in this narrative. The kingdom of heaven. And opposite to all these other kingdoms stated, the kingdom of facade, the kingdom of, well, if we do it, God will be with us. He'll back it, no matter the people that get ran over to anything to accomplish God's will. Or the kingdom of self that I am the most important top entity. That the kingdom of heaven is contrary to all that. He says, actually... My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be in here overthrowing this whole place. Rome would not even exist anymore. And Jesus' methods of overthrowing Rome were a little different than Barabbas. I'd say Jesus' method of overthrowing Rome was a little more successful. When's the last time you met a Roman? Right? I know a whole lot more Christians than I do know Romans. But at this point in time, and I would argue even right now in our cultural moment, the ideology of Jesus' method of living in his kingdom and the way in which his disciples are to carry themselves was so problematic and contrary to the way of the world and still is. Some things never change. Whereas in these other ideologies, what is great? Power. What is great? 
leadership, ruling, authority. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say is, a, is somebody who is significant in his kingdom? He says this in Luke 18, 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. It keeps going in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. You ever spend time around children? Maybe you have nephews, maybe you have nieces. Being a dad and going to be a physical dad soon, uh, which I'm really excited about, hence 